0: initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville, faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Thank you, JJ. Thank you, Ben uh, Weicker, for that presentation and in particular for naming one of your proofs after me uh, that makes you practically invulnerable to criticism. Uh, (laughs) I would look churlish and ungrateful if I had any reservation about that third uh, argument of yours. So I'll um, employ this rhetorical strategy myself, refute my adversary, and then name the objections for him. So uh, I um, would like to um, begin um, uh, 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 my response like this. Um, Dr. Weicker has stressed the role of natural science in arguing for the existence of God and I will stress the role of philosophy in making these arguments for the existence of God. Not that I think we really disagree here but we need some different emphasis in order for me to give a meaningful response. And it is perhaps especially important, although most of the other speakers have uh, strongly stressed the work that only philosophy can do uh, in these theological questions. But it is perhaps particularly important um, to stress it again uh, because we, we live in a culture where there is this enormous esteem for science and uh, this uh, skeptical suspicion about philosophy. And in that setting, Christians easily overrate the probative power of natural science to establish conclusions that are important for them. For instance, I've often heard it said by Christians in the abortion debate that contemporary embryology has established once and for all the personhood of the embryo. But this is not true. The objection is always raised that the early embryo, while it may be biologically human, is not yet a person, on the grounds that a person is inseparable from having personal consciousness. One argues that since the early embryo has as yet no personal consciousness, it cannot be a person. This objection cannot be refuted by embryology. It can be refuted all right, but only on the basis of a philosophical analysis of personhood. And so, with the evidence that natural science offers, for the existence of God. It is only by a certain collaboration of philosophy and natural science that this evidence gets turned into anything like an argument for the existence of God. The natural science alone can't deliver the argument. Now, uh, I may seem already here to be in disagreement with Dr. Weicker, who declares at the beginning of his paper, quote, Science can demonstrate the existence of God, and who says in the last sentence of his paper, it is therefore possible to prove the existence of God through the existence of science. But if we look at the way he qualifies his thesis, and above all at the four arguments that he sketches, at the end of his paper, it's perfectly clear that he employs plenty of philosophy along with the natural science that he uses. He practices just that collaboration of philosophy and natural science that is needed in dealing with the status of the embryo and needed in our thinking about God. So consider his third argument. I'm referring to the four that he sketched at the end. It seems to me to be exclusively a work of philosophy with no support from natural science. It is not so much An argument for the existence of God is an argument against the reductionist materialism, which, if true, would block all arguments for God. It is an important argument and ably advanced by Dr. Weicker. He argues, among other things, that materialists presuppose free will and responsibility and personal identity, even while they hold a theory that excludes free will and responsibility and personal identity. The materialist affirms in his materialism in theory and constantly betrays it in practice. The incoherence at the center of what the materialist does is made manifest by philosophical reflection and not by any research in physics or biology. Or consider Dr. Weicker's fourth argument, the one based on the intelligibility in nature. Now, The natural scientist is a full collaborator here, since it is natural science that brings to light the intelligibility of which he speaks. But Dr. Weicker surely reasons, and he, I'm sure, acknowledges this, not as a natural scientist, but as a philosopher and metaphysician when he traces this intelligibility back to a divine intelligence. And before he gets anywhere close to the god of Christian monotheism, he has to work through a number of problems for the solution of which natural science has nothing to say. For example, could this intelligibility in nature be the work of angelic intelligence? How do we know that nothing less than the mind of God Almighty could have devised it? Metaphysics has something to say in response to this question, but physics does not. And there's another question. Could this intelligibility be the work of several angels working together in angelic harmony? How do we know that the author of the intelligibility in nature is the one God? This unicity of God, God being one, is not uh, so easy a thing to demonstrate in metaphysics. And in any case, I I don't know of any result that any natural science could produce that would settle the question in favor of the uh, unicity of God. Only the metaphysician has the resources to tackle the question. But if someone overlooks these questions and jumps right from the intelligibility found by science and nature, To the god of Christian monotheism he is acting precipitously, not unlike the person who jumps from the impressive photos of human embryos to affirming the personhood of the embryo. Both of these persons give more evidence of piety than of intellectual seriousness. Neither of them will be able to meet the intellectual challenges to their position if they do not learn first to support their position with metaphysical arguments. Now, I wanted to add one critical remark on his fourth um, argument from the intelligibility of nature. This also shows the importance of philosophical clarification for making these arguments work. Uh, Dr. Weicker says that The wonder that leads to God is not only the intelligibility that the scientist brings out, but the way our mind is made for it. And he develops the idea with a reference to geometry right at the end. He says, if, if, if I read him rightly, what a marvel that the laws of geometry that we study in Euclid actually govern the physical world. What a marvel that what starts out in our thinking fits the real world and helps us to understand it. What, he seems to ask, but a divinely preordained harmony between our thinking and the physical world can explain this. Uh, Here's my critical reservation. If we think of geometry as giving us an analysis of the essential structure of space, then of course all spatially extended things are governed by the laws of geometry. The only surprising thing would be if spatially extended things did not follow the laws of geometry. Whatever holds of something universally holds necessarily of each instance of that thing. So it seems to me that it does not take any special fine tuning wrought by God in order to make a spatially extended object correspond to the essential structure of space that we study in geometry. So I suggest that the exact point of departure uh, here for his fourth argument um, needs some clarification so as to avoid what we might call the fallacy of uh, misplaced marveling. No, 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 Notice that uh, the um, uh, point I raise here uh, is an eminently philosophical one and it illustrates what I want to, above all, bring out that philosophy has a role that uh, only philosophy can accomplish in uh, clarifying and working out these proofs. But now before concluding, um, I would be very ungrateful if I didn't make uh, a comment on the personalist argument uh, that he uh, proposed. And let me just state it as I understand it. You can correct it and um, uh, maybe improve it still. But he seems to say, let's start from the human person and all those dimensions of personal existence stressed by personalist philosophers. Let's take very seriously the subjectivity of persons, the freedom of persons, the self-possession of persons, the self-donation of which persons are capable, the incommunicability of each person, the restlessness that keeps stirring just when we think we've come to rest. So his idea is that, we should not let ourselves be talked out of these significant aspects of personal existence, but take them very seriously and make them the norm for our thinking about science. And so he then, I think, wants to proceed and develop a kind of anthropic fine-tuning with reference to persons, showing the many lines of physical and biological development that have converged to make possible the existence of persons. So we have, in place of the anthropic principle, a kind of personalistic uh, version of the same thing. And uh, I think that's a very promising uh, uh, way to uh, develop and exploit this uh, fine-tuning idea. Uh, And I think I would have a lot to learn, especially from that very fine book of yours uh, that that deals with this subject. I I would just, and I'm almost finished here, offer one caution. Um, One must take care not to make the transition from the enabling biological conditions to actual persons appear to be seamless as if Persons were just a kind of natural outgrowth of uh, of those fine-tuned processes. All personalist philosophers stress a certain incommensurability of the human person with the cosmos. Persons have a capacity for infinity that makes them, in some sense, restless strangers in the cosmos, and not in every respect, simply at home in it. So there's something radically new in persons with this uh, uh, sign of being capable of God. Uh, that's the caution I would um, want to register. But with that caution in front of us, we could, um, thinking about this novelty of personal existence, be led not to one but to two ways to the existence of God. For there is not only the indication of God that lies in the fine-tuning that prepares a place in the world for persons, there's also something else, namely the creative act of God which calls each person into being. If we do full justice to this mystery of personal subjectivity, we can argue, as I think, I can't do it here, that no new person comes into being by the interplay of secondary causes. Nothing but a direct creative act of God can accomplish this, uh, or so I would argue, which means, and I uh, conclude with this, that a personalist point uh, point of departure uh, may indeed be very fruitful, uh, just as you suggest, for our knowledge of God. Thank you initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville, faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.